make in life. We all make choices every day. We make choices. When I graduated from high school, I had choices to make of what to do in life. And uh, after a gap year, I chose to go to work in my father's firm, the furniture business. Yes, the same furniture business I'm in today. And along with that choice of going to work for my father, I chose to go to college. Um, I had to go at night, and I had to go during the summers, and I had to go for five years. I was on one of those plans. And after I graduated from college, after five years, I chose to go on to graduate school. Three more years of um, not heaven. Um, and uh, after eight years, I, um, I came right back into my father's firm and started working right where I left off eight years ago. Been there for almost 30 years. And so the question comes up, was it worth it? Eight years of education, eight years of reading and papers and homeworks and no weekends and no vacation and no summers and all the money and time, was it worth it? Well, I see parents out here who are about to send their children off to college, so I'm not going to answer that question out loud. But I would do it again in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I would spend my evenings and weekends and summers. I would pay whatever amount of money. I would read any book. I would even take statistics again. <laughs> I would do it in a heartbeat. If just for one more time, I could walk down that street at the University of South Carolina, if I could just walk down that street and bump into those two people, one of them was my campus minister. And as I walked up to him, and as I bumped into him, he turned to that person next to him, and then he looked at me, and he said, Oh, hi, Mark. Have you met Phoebe? In a heartbeat. Let's pray. Beloved Father, today, as I speak, would you grant me to, to speak the intents of Jesus' heart? And as we listen, would we listen to the intents of Jesus' heart? For his sake, amen. Today's uh, sermon comes from Matthew 10, 24 through 42. I wasn't going to read it. It's a long passage, but I did see that uh, it is in the bulletin that I am to read it. And I do think that there is um, there's wonderful goodness just in letting the words of Christ settle on us. So listen as I read from Matthew 10, 40, 24 through 42. A disciple is not above his teacher, teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in, in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. After going over this passage a couple of hundred times, the phrase, is it worth it, kept popping into my, into my head. How many times is Christianity often presented to this world as something that is worth it? Now, this idea of worth means that one would have to judge, to make judgment, to place a value upon, to assign a measure to, to bring God down so that we could weigh him, as it were, in our scales of judgment. It also struck me that by using any of this world's measures or values, this passage can only lead one to the conclusion that Christianity is not worth it. By every human standard, the cross was a waste and this call to bear our cross and all its implications, who in their right mind would buy into this? Yet, here we are. If you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, it's a good bet you are sitting next to someone who is a Christian, a follower of Christ. So, What's the difference? Why are they here worshiping and you are not? I can tell you this, that once we were a people with those scales of judgment in our hands, 
those scales that evaluated God, that uh, judged God, that led us to dismiss God. Yes, those were us. And then there was God. There was a moment when God brought himself to us. He took us and he turned us and he dropped those scales from our eyes and from our hands. And for the first time, we got to see him. He made us alive. We know he did. We know he did for the first, because for the first time in all the noise of our judging and assessing and dismissing him, in all our is it worth it, we could hear him. In the midst, he spoke these words to our hearts, and we heard him. He said, this is my son, and he is worthy. And that is the setting of today's passage. The setting is us. People he made alive who have fallen in love with Jesus. Today's sermon is the final one in a series that began in verse 1 where it says he called to himself his 12 disciples and he sent them out. Historically, the setting has to do with expectations. In Israel's history at this time of Jesus, uh, they had already been under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the desecration of the temple. They had been under the uh, Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans, uh, who loved to introduce Hellenism into their lives. And currently they were under the subjection of Roman rule. So at this time, the Jews of first century Palestine had enough. They wanted their kingdom. They wanted the kingdom Jesus promised. This set of people that Jesus ministered to was also the set of people that Jesus drew these disciples from. And they had various understandings of what this kingdom to come would look like. The Pharisees of the day felt it would come from isolation. The Sadducees felt that uh, they would gain the kingdom through assimilation the Essenes thought that the kingdom would come because of isolation, and the Zealots, of course, they thought they could bring the kingdom in with annihilation. But the kingdom, the kingdom we see in scriptures, and this is, this is an important point, not just for the sermon, but it's an important point for life. The kingdom we see in scriptures is the place where the redemptive heart of our God dwells in the person and work of the Messiah, the Son of God. That's an important definition. That makes the kingdom story Christ's story. And here in the passage today, as he calls his disciples, he is calling us into his story. He is making a very personal call. This is an intimate passage. We start today in verses 24 and 25 as our Savior looks at us and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He is saying, I am the man of sorrows. 
and acquainted with grief. I am despised and I am rejected. I am the light of the world and the darkness hates me. I have come to set the prisoner free and to destroy the works of darkness and I have come to do that through you. So my title will be your title. My mantle, your mantle. You will be the people of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You will be hated and flogged and killed just like me. What darkness celebrates, I came to destroy, so make no mistake. When it perceives that I am in you, it will despise and reject you just like me. Perhaps that's why a Presbyterian minister who knew Christ so well uttered these words when Christ calls a man. He bids him come and die. So, said Jesus, when you see this happening, I want you to remember, I want you, my servants at Potomac Hills, to remember this. I know the power of fear. I know that fear will stalk you. I know how inhibiting and disabling it can be. I know it crushes passions and energy and it quenches fires. I know where it comes from and I know where it leads. I know that fear is the great faith killer. But listen, listen. Faith is the great fear killer. Keep the eyes of your heart fixed on me and remember and trust what I am about to tell you. Fear not, only believe. In verses 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Have faith that there will be a day when all will be made right, when the perversions of darkness celebrated as truth and freedom will be exposed in the light, when what is true and good will be, will be known by all, for there will be a day when I will be known by all, and every knee will bow. Every knee that flogs you and drags you and kills you will bow before me. And every tongue that mocks and derides and belittles and rejects and maligns you, it will confess. There will be a day it will confess that I am the Lord. And so too there will come a day when what I tell you now in secret, your eyes will behold. Christ is risen will be on your lips and in your hearts and in the air. And my spirit and power and glory will be your very life and you will be shouting this from the rooftops. The kingdom of, of God has come and the kingdom is Christ and Christ is risen. Fear not. And do not fear, in verse 20, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We all 
die. But then there is a judgment, a death, a separation, a hell. And all at the hands of my Father. If you tremble, tremble at this. Recently, uh, the local paper of ours interviewed a person who had gone their own way into a new type of church because they believed very strongly in God, just not the God of the Bible. And they especially could not tolerate the very notion of hell. This was all laid out very plainly in our local paper. Friends, if you are visiting today and you belong... Now, I don't say this very often and I don't say this much. But if you are visiting today and you belong to a church that does not teach the doctrines of hell, run away. Run away. And if in your heart you dismiss the doctrines of hell as too painful or hurtful, or uncharitable, or not possible in a God of love, I ask you in Christ's name, repent. Christ exposes us to the reality of judgment and hell so that we might live. Not just free from the fears of men, but that we might live in the clarity and mercy and worth of our calling. We do not bring a trivial message of morality and choices. Ours is not a social revolution, and ours certainly isn't a political perspective. Ours is an eternal mercy and an eternal hope. The true truth is that there is a heaven and a hell, and we bring heaven because we bring a risen Messiah who suffered a hell for us. Just because they repudiate the message and just because they kill the messenger, this does not diminish the darkness and the horrors of hell. True suffering, get this. If you're not a believer today, get this. True suffering is separation from God. Darkness does not define what is true. By faith, said one writer, let us fear so that we may not fear. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Put, a, put another way, nothing is meaningless. There are no accidents. Everything has reference to the Father. And I think the word whatever is a curse word. And for those that love God, all things work together for good. Doctrinally, we call this providence, and our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Of providence, it says, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. 
The Heidelberg Catechism, in answering the question of what is our only comfort in life and death, says that I, with my soul and body, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves so that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. And as doctrine, we sometimes push our understanding of providence. We examine it, we philosophize about it, we question it, and will till we reach, well, the very mysteries of God. How exactly does it work? Where does sin come from? How can this cancer be providence? Then sometimes we push further. And challenged by the testimony of all the things we experience, we neglect what our Savior meant for our comfort. We walk down the road of life without reference to our sustainer. And at the end of the day, we wonder, we wonder why our souls are so dry. Last week, I was walking to the bus along a busy street full of people and buses and cars and noise and cafes, and in my hustle not to miss the bus, I saw one of these sparrows, you know, the kind that flit around looking for crumbs. There was a cafe there, and it was flitting on the sidewalk, and uh, in a moment, they're here, and the next moment, these sparrows, they're gone. And immediately, I thought, ooh, ooh, this could work into my sermon. <laughs> And a few steps later, a second one flew right by my shoulder, letting, letting nothing stop on its mission to steal those crumbs from the first one. And aha, there's the second sparrow for my sermon. And not four steps later, I walked over a third one, barely recognizable because a huge tire had evidently rolled over it. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> It wasn't until much later, I say in repentance, it wasn't until much later, trying to make a message out of that mess, that I had one of those slow motion recognition moments when all goes quiet and there's just one thought. I stopped and I smiled and I sighed and I said, Oh, hello, Father. Three sparrows. We embrace Christ's word in these verses here in doctrine because like the testimony of Peter, like the testimony of our Rose and our Tom, like the testimony of so many people in this room, these words are life. As J.I. Packer said, the simple statement, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances that the Bible contains. Please say, Amen. The kingdom call is a call to faith. Faith that you are the Father's beloved, and nothing, nothing, nothing will beset or befall you outside the power and protection and purpose of his heart. 
That is the essence of the kingdom. That is our hope. So I guess in a roundabout way, the sparrow in our lives, the fallen sparrow, even when the fallen sparrow is us, is a call to us. It's a question. Do you trust your father's heart? Faith is the great fear killer. And then Jesus goes on to one of those statements that kind of feels like a sharp stick in the eye. It seems like he's saying in the next verses, don't fear, but now I'm going to strike fear into you because in the reading, it sounds like he's saying that salvation is not really by faith. It is really by faith plus you telling other people about me, and if you don't tell other people about me, you are going to hell. Verses 32 and 33, read with me. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Family, Jesus was never about being nice. He was about grace. And if you learn anything about grace, learn this. Grace is God's restoring at Christ's entering. That's grace. He was about establishing his kingdom in us and through us, and his idea of comforting us was not in the contemporary self-indulgent sentimental sense. For Christ, comfort was the power of God for us, and in us. If the takeaway from these verses is that if you don't tell people about Jesus, you're going to hell, you miss the point. I'm sure when the disciples read the book of Matthew in latter years and came upon these two verses, they were like, oh yeah, that was so true. I think that's the New Living Translation of what they said. <laughs> anyway, to understand these couple of verses, I want to take us back into the psyche of the first century Jew, back into the foundations of their belief, back in Psalm 121. Let me read it for you. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will never slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep our life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Israelite will look to God and sing out, He is my sun and my shield. He is my song and he has become my salvation. This was a birthright an inheritance, an entitlement. This was a kingdom thing. Here, in these verses, I think, I think Jesus is declaring unconditionally to them, I am your son and shield. I am your strength and I am your song and I am your salvation. I am. And my father's father's heart 
for you. It is not me plus your heritage, me plus that circumcision thing, me plus Moses. I am not an add-on or an option in any of this. I am not an option in you. I and I alone am the Christ. No matter what the Sadducees or Pharisees or Essenes or Zealots say, no matter what the governors or kings or powers of darkness declare, no matter what the Washington Post or New York Times nor height nor depth, depth nor religion nor anything declares, the heart of God is his kingdom. And at the center of the, his kingdom is his word. And at the center of his word is his gospel. And at the center of his gospel is Jesus. And Jesus is declaring, I am the word I am the gospel. I am the kingdom. I am my Father's heart for you. It's me and me alone. And secondly, secondly, this, these couple of verses leads us to remember that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sooner or later, out of your mouth will come what's in your heart. Does not your heart overflow with me? Am I not in your heart? I am listening. And when I hear you confess me before men that I am the Lord, all the promises of Yahweh will be yours because I will ask him for you because I will always live to make intercession for you. But if you stand before me and I am not on your lips, I will hear that also. Have my words fallen on such rocky soil? Or have the weeds of life choked out that seed planted in you? Is the testimony of your lives revealed in your words, is it that he's not worth it? Then Jesus says, when the Father asks, when, 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 then Jesus says, when the Father asks, Jesus, the God, then God the Father will say, I don't know. I don't know you. He's not mine. She's not mine. My grace will not be yours to pardon you. My power will not be yours to protect you. My wisdom will will not be yours to direct you. My goodness will not be yours to satisfy you. My mercy will not be yours to supply you. And my glory will not be yours to crown you. You are not my beloved. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Friends, when we fall down, like Peter, there's always grace for that because our Savior always lives for us. Jesus here is not talking about falling down, just as he is not talking about the salvation of faith plus confession. In calling us, he is declaring the confession of faith. He is saying, listen to your testimony in this world and then ask the question, have you ever begun to live? 
in this church, as sometimes happens, when an elder asks if you would proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he is always listening for life. And our Lord goes on to verses 34 and 37 through 37. I won't take time to read it all to you. You have it in front of you. But here, here in these verses, we recognize one of the great truths of our faith, and that is that he delivered us. He delivered us from the kingdom. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. To the prince of darkness and the powers and principalities, we are an enemy, an aroma of death unto death, a loathing stench, and the kingdom of darkness, it will not go quietly. The word and the judgment of the cross will enter lives and homes and communities, and it will rend asunder relationships. Because the darkness hates the light, And because Christ hates the darkness. In the presence of this sword, this conflict, the greater temptation is usually to seek peace and acceptance and harmony with or without reference to the heart of Christ. As a matter of fact, we will unflinchingly declare that Christ wants peace and acceptance and love. After all, they're the family he gave us. In that day, says Christ, in the day of the sword, when those you love most in this life, those for whom you would lay down your life, those who are the treasures of your heart, when they reject me and in you and so reject you and you, you choose peace. You choose peace with them over me. You have chosen wrong. You are not a vessel for honorable use, but dishonor. I have come to set the captives free, not to make peace. One of my um, beloved, I pray that in the day that happens to you, I pray that the Spirit of Christ himself will dwell in your hearts richly and that you will know how to respond because Jesus is in you. One of my nieces had to experience this recently. Her heart became captured by a handsome young man full of good looks, good manners, good intellect, good humor, and good gracious, but not, not full of Christ. Not at all. Recently I heard that under conviction of the Spirit of Christ, she broke off that dating relationship. What fellowship does darkness have with light, Jesus asks. She wept 
she wept a lot. I want to tell you, my niece, from this pulpit, from the word of Christ today, that our Savior, he is holding those tears in his hands. Those tears are precious to him. For they tell him, for they tell him and the world that you chose Christ. In verse 37, the call is not to love our fathers, mothers, or children less. Or somehow to figure out that in balance we love Jesus more than we love them. Not at all. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our Savior even said earlier, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To honor and to love are reflections of the character of God in us. But, says Christ, love is not your God. I am. And because the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by my Spirit, you love them through me. You love your most beloved through me. You love your family through me. You love your homes through me. You love the arts and sports and jobs and education through me. You love your land and your government and even your leisure through me. You love your neighbors through me and you love your co-workers through me. And when they are rejecting you, you love them through me. And when they are delivering you up, you love them through me. You love your own life through me. For I, and I alone, am the power of God to restore what is broken, to redeem what is lost, to make live what has died. I am the hope of glory. I am the heart of my Father in you, and through me, through me, you are the heart of my Father. This is the call of Christ. And then Jesus goes on in verse 37 to unfold this call in the most intimate of levels. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In John 12, Jesus would say it this way, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This journey, this calling always starts where our death begins. When Christ calls a man or a woman or a child, he always bids them come and die. Before you begin, you have choices to make. I will say as strongly 
as I can. As your brother, as your friend, as your elder, and as a servant of Jesus, I will say this as strongly as I can. Every choice you make, every choice is an opportunity to express belief or unbelief. It is an opportunity to express you love the Lord or you don't love the Lord. It is an opportunity to die and live or live and die. Christ bore his cross, the cross, because he knew that every soul that sins must die, just as he knew that the sins of the soul must die. And the first of those sins born by Adam is not thy will, but my will be done. So Jesus says in verse 38, take up your cross. Every man in that room knew what the cross meant. They had seen it from childhood along those dusty backwater roads. They had seen it, they had heard it, they had smelt it. They knew what the cross meant. It is the dying to sin and all that implies. It's the end of self. It is the dying to self-will, that will that is born of anything but the heart of Christ, that will that is self-preservation, self-absorbency, uh, self-absorption, self-sufficiency, the lusts of the flesh, flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It is the death to that fallen image that stands up like the first Adam and says, I am the Lord of my life. Beloved, it is the supreme testimony of every follower of Christ that says, in his death, I live. But it is not so much the testimony of his followers that in his death, in my death, he lives. I cannot overemphasize the life-altering nature of our Lord's words here, nor can I overemphasize the lengths our hearts will go to rationalize them away. Family, fear, fortune, friends, fame, fantasies. Listen, those scales in your hands, born of the kingdom of the flesh, they are very powerful. The freedom and independence and autonomy and satisfaction of the whole world are in those scales. Let this be a warning. I will call it the Phil Rodenberg warning. If our hearts have not been captured, if we can never remember him as our first love, if that cross is not on our hands, then we will wander through this life, hungering and settling for what the world has to offer. And we might end up living very good lives, prosperous, healthy, happy, satisfied. The kingdom of this world will be ours, and we can be like God. 
But in the end, says our Lord, it is a living death. We will lose it all. Jesus, as he stands forth in his kingdom, as we have beheld him, as our hearts were once captured by him when we first met, he is spectacularly supreme and beautiful and glorified, uh, glorious and satisfying and worthy. He is my beloved and I am his. The question never is Is it worth it? The question is, why wouldn't I? So that he could live in me. Why wouldn't I want to lose what I cannot keep to gain him? And then, In the midst of all this death and fear and division, he holds us in his hands and he looks into our eyes and he says something incomprehensible. Look at verse 40. Go on, look at it. Whoever receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the Father. I wish I could stop right here. Who can explain these words? Adding to them seems just to lessen their glory. Whoever receives you, receives me. We should just go on to live in the hunger of the mystery in these words. But, If there be but a mustard seed of comprehension, a start in our understanding, let let this be the taste. In our death, he lives. And in his life, the love of God is made manifest to all men. So in our death, others live. That's the gospel he's proclaiming. You are the light of the world because I am the light of the world and I am in you. When you walk into my house, you bring Jesus. And when you sit at my table, I bring you Jesus. 
And whether you, when you lay carpet or sell carpet or buy carpet, you bring Jesus. And when you homeschool or teach in school or go to school, you bring Jesus. When you send rockets into space or play with rockets, you bring Jesus. When you marry the love of your life or live with that lump in your life, you bring Jesus. And when you parent those precious children or just survive those precious children, you bring Jesus. And whether you practice law or practice golf or practice dance or practice sports, you bring Jesus. And whether you live in the backwaters of Palestine or the beautiful along the beautiful waters of the Potomac, you bring Jesus. Every day, as the call to discipleship leads us down the streets of life, we run into those who walk in this world. And in that moment, in a heartbeat, or perhaps I should say, because our hearts beat. From our mouths, we get to confess those beautiful, life-altering words. Have you met Jesus? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the name of Jesus, because he is worthy. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, for the glory of your name, and for Jesus' sake. Amen.